Good evening, everyone. Be sure you move down close so you can um, feel you're, like you're part of the party. Welcome to the War Memorial Opera House this evening. It's Friday, April 8th, 2011, and this is opening night of Program 7 in San Francisco Ballet's repertory season. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. The Center for Dance Education produces the Meet the Artist interviews, the points of view lectures held on Wednesdays during the season over in the green room, and lots of other really interesting programming. And as you probably know, these interviews and programs are recorded for podcasting. So be sure you go to the San Francisco Ballet's website, sfballet.org, and videos. There's a great blog, Studio 455. It's all kinds of neat stuff, so I hope you'll do that. Again, welcome to this evening's Meet the Artist interview. It's going to be a good one. I'm very pleased that with me tonight is designer, costume designer, Holly Hines. So please welcome Holly. Uh, no, it ju you just have to bell. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> Be sure that the uh, recording devices pick this up. <clears throat> and it's allergy season, so <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, of course, um, we have all seen Holly's work over many, many years. And uh, doing my homework, I went to the website and to the bio and was actually surprised to realize that we have only seen a fraction of your 170 ballets. And in addition, there are operas, there are plays, there are all kinds of projects. And I, I was just um, delighted to know that uh, you are spending some time with us. <laughs> so um, Holly's design this evening will be for Christopher Wheeldon's piece, the world premiere, entitled Number Nine. And we might get you to tell us, is there a secret behind the, the naming of it, Number Nine? But I thought it would be interesting if you, we just started with your telling us um, kind of where do we start, but the, the life of a costume designer and this wonderful career you've had, um, take us back to how does one become a costume designer? Let's see, I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, and I had a toy fox terrier named Candy who I like to put all my baby doll clothes on. And I think that's really where I started to think it was fun to torture someone by putting <laughs> clothing on them and then looking at them and laughing. No, not laughing, but uh, that's probably where I started. But I did study costume design at college, and I went to a liberal arts college in Iowa called Co College that had a New York term, and I spent a semester in New York City working with a costume designer, and I loved it. And so I went back to school and finished, and then I was invited to New York to work for her. And my first experience was Gold of the Amazon Women. That was an NBC movie of the week. Maybe you have it on DVD at home. <laughs> my finest hour. I did a lot of the feather work. 
And then I got a little nervous with the freelance thing, and the designer said, maybe you're not meant to be a freelance person. Maybe you should work in a costume shop. I didn't even know there were costume shops that you could work at. So I started as a shopper. And a shopper is a person that does all the purchasing of the fabric and the buttons and the trim and works closely with the designers. And I love that, and I learned a lot. And after doing that, I was promoted to a project manager, which is a person that's given to the designers when they come into the shop to make a movie or a play or an opera, whatever it is. And eventually, I left that shop and went to work for a very famous costume maker named Barbara Matera, who a lot of San Francisco ballet costumes over the years have been made by their shop. And it sadly closed this year after 42 years in the business. But my early training was with her, and that's where I learned about dance. I knew nothing about it, and I went to her as a theater designer and assistant, and she said, it's the same thing. It just stretches. <laughs> well, it's not the same thing, as you know, coming to the ballet. It is completely different designing for ballet compared to theater or, or opera. But I learned a lot from her, and then I went with her to join the New York City Ballet where I was director of costumes for 21 years and learned everything you could want to learn about the Balanchine rep and Karinska, who was Balanchine's designer, and learned so much that now I am the costume consultant for the Balanchine Trust and also for Jerome Robbins Ballets. And what that means is if a company anywhere in the world chooses to do a Robbins or a Balanchine, uh, if they are going to recreate the original costumes, I'm hired to teach their shop or guide another outside costume shop to make those clothes. Um, being a freelance costume designer, it is very important to have other work. So to have this blessing of being the consultant for both of those great men um, is really fabulous for me. And I, someone asked me today how I would balance my work. And I, and I would say that half of my work is as a freelance designer and the other half is as a costume consultant for both those companies. Well, the um, list of companies that you design for, I mean, they go around the world, and um, that must be kind of a fun life. Um, one of the things that jumped out at me um, in this subject of the consulting is more how you do it. And there's this thing called the Bible, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that. Sure. The Bible is actually my term, but it's pretty readily used everywhere now. Uh, and it was, it's an instruction book that is uh, put together in my home with photographs of the existing costumes, uh, pr production photographs, swatches either of the original fabric, if I'm lucky enough to have them, or something so similar that it would help guide somewhere, someone somewhere else in finding that fabric. Uh, renderings, suggestions of treatment of how to sew it. I do not put patterns in the Bible because I'm of the feeling that outside companies need to own this ballet in some way and this allows their costume people to own the patterns and then it becomes their ballet. Um, and that way it allowed New York City Ballet to own their own patterns. It, everyone that originates a costume really owns their patterns. Even the costume shop that's made the costumes for the last piece tonight, for Chris's piece, San Francisco Ballet doesn't own the patterns, but the costume shop that makes them owns the patterns. 
Um, the Bible now is so much better than the Bibles I was making 15 years ago. You know, I was cutting out pictures and taping them in and writing notes in pen, and now it's all digital. It's all done on the computer. And, and that way it's safe because, you know, you don't want this to happen, but sometimes materials are lost or swatches are pulled out accidentally. And that way I also can mass produce it. Some, right now, Balanchine's Jewels, for example, I think is being made in three different companies around the world. Coppelia that was just here last season, which I wasn't involved in, but Coppelia was done here and it was done in Seattle. It's also being done in Dresden, Germany, all with the new designs that you saw here at San Francisco. So it helps it become more global. So you get a commission, and let's just use this one as an example. Um, Chris Wilden gets a call from Helgi, and Helgi says, I want you to do ballet. And Chris says, OK, that sounds great. Um, we need to put costumes on it. I think I'll call Holly. <laughs> Take it from there. Well, actually, Chris called me and said, the first thing I'm going to tell you about this ballet, I'm not even going to tell you the music. The first thing I'm going to tell you is it's a blue floor. It's a cobalt blue floor. Then he told me the music, that it was Michael Torkey, and I knew the music because Peter Martins, 20 years ago, had done a piece to the same music, and I think Helgi had done a piece to the same music, maybe, a long time ago. It wasn't Helgi. It'll come to me. Okay. I think it's in the program notes, actually. Okay. Uh, so I listened to the music, and that's the, that's the first thing that a designer has at their fingertips, is to be able to explore the music. And my family can get so frustrated because I'll listen to the music about 20 to 30 times before I start drawing. You know, and I've heard my children on the phone saying, oh, just ignore it, my mother has a new ballet. You know, because they've had to hear it over and over. Because it's got to get, in the same way the music has to get in the skin of the dancers, it has to get in the skin of the designer as well. Um, then Chris and I talked again, and most of our conversations were on Skype, thank goodness for computer, so that we could see each other, because he was in England working on a full-length ballet, and I was working on a different full-length in the States. So we were never in the same place at the same time. In fact, when the ballet flew me out this trip, they said, oh, we have good news. You're sitting next to Christopher Wilden. And I said, oh, great. We can finally have a conversation about the ballet. <laughs> but we had a lot of conversations over the phone. Don't get me wrong. Um, and then he went into the studio. And because of timing, he needed to create this piece last summer. So I was able to watch a video. And that's fantastic to get to see maybe not the complete ballet, but more or less a good taste of the ballet before you start drawing. Because without giving it away, but you're here because you want to have behind the scenes secrets, um, in his ballet, there is a moment where the corps de ballet lays on the floor and does a little rolling business. So that immediately told me no silk chiffon. That was not going to work. And that the costumes better be able to go into the wash and even drip dry, but be able to be washed after every performance. I also realized that the core themselves was almost like a principal couple. I mean, they, the core is such strong work in this ballet that to me it's as important as the principal duets are. Um, so we wanted to make a strong statement, but then you've also got to lift your principal couples up. And I think I've done an okay job. You'll be the judge of that. But they're in very strong, get your sunglasses out, brilliant yellow. And yellow isn't used very much in the ballet. Nor is lime green, which also appears. 
and a strong purple and a teal and a brilliant orange. But when I listened to the music, it seemed to scream for strong color. So that's why I started there. And then I also felt that it was, it's a very happy piece. It, you feel good at the end of it. You want to get up there and dance with the dancers. And I felt like we've all been through such horrible economic strains in the last couple of years that it was time we had something pretty to look at, something up and perky. And also, I'm from the East Coast, and it is still snowing in New York. <laughs> so I was really ready for some strong color. So that, that's where my inner feeling came about the, the things that we chose. Chris doesn't often uh, express a whole lot of uh, barriers about what the shape of the clothes should be. But he had seen a, pl a pleated skirt that he really liked. And he said, if you can figure out a way to use a pleated skirt, that would be fabulous. Well, now, remember earlier I said it's important it be able to be washed. I don't know how many of you own pleated skirts. <laughs> but you don't often wash a pleated skirt or a kilt or anything like that. So what we worked out in the shop was it, it appears as a pleated skirt. But in truth, each of the pleats is stitched so that they, if they hit water, they don't, it doesn't fall out. The other thing I did was I chose a silk charmeuse, which is a very soft, drapey fabric. It's shiny on one side, dull on the other. So if you're sitting close enough, when the skirts move, you'll get a flash of the shine. That's on the inside of the skirt. The, by using the dull fabric on the outside, when it's dyed, it, it's an easier way to make it match the stretch fabric that's the leotard. And that gives you sort of a dress silhouette instead of just a bodice and a skirt. Because in designing for dance, it's all about the line. It's all about not getting in the way of the choreography. So for me to use their bodies as what the shape of this garment is meant to be, that's a, that's a great way to do it. And by doing that all in one color, it, it's more successful than breaking it up. I'm hearing you say that you have um, been given a great deal of freedom, design freedom by Chris. <clears throat> Is that always the case? Are you sometimes having to stick within very closely confined um, assignment oh, limits? Sure. Uh, one of Chris and my favorite ballets, and you've probably seen it here, is called Polyphonia, where there are relatively no costumes. But let me tell you, that ballet's helped my children go to college um, because it is all over the world. And he just wanted to do something that was so simple that it was a little bit reflective of Balanchine's neoclassical ballets, which are black and white, but not be black and white, which is why I used the really deep purple eggplant color. And we used a very thick fabric so that it wouldn't have to be lined, but it was strong enough that nothing, you know, no little bumps or warts or anything would show, not that this company has any of those, but it, it was a way of making them not feel so naked you know, they did have a costume on. It wasn't just a leotard for class. And then there's a tiny little black uh, patent leather belt with a little buckle. So very, very simple on the girls. The men are leotards and tights in a slightly different color. But Chris had visions of using shadows behind, and he wanted, he just wanted dancers' bodies. So it, that was a hard, you know, thing to tackle because I couldn't use black. I couldn't have skirts. Uh, I think we even have bare legs, maybe. I'm not sure if it's bare legs. They're all mushed together a little bit. Um, 
so it, it just depended on, on the project. Sometimes it's much freer, like this was very free and we had a great time, and sometimes it's more restrictive. Sometimes he has a story, and then you have to kind of follow what the story is. We had a great ballet called Shambards at New York City Ballet that was a murder, and it was foretold backwards. So the first scene, you saw the, the man killed his girlfriend, and then these people came out of the hills, and they were sort of eventually in kilts, but the kilts were made of silk, and it was all very painterly and ghostly. And it, you know, So there was a story we had to tell with the costume. So in that particular case, that was more freer, too, I think. One of the things that's always interested me when we've <clears throat> been able, and I think some of you have heard conversations with our wardrobe staff, is um, building the costumes and how to solve the problem set by the designer. I heard you say that you travel to the design or to the shops. Is, is that a rule that you have? Um, at what point do you kind of turn a costume shop loose on a design that you've presented to them? That's a good question, especially because, remember, I ran a costume shop for over 20 years. So my experience was guiding other people but also being hands-on when I was the designer. And I love that, trying to figure out how you're going to solve something or what's the best way to make something happen or, you know, how do we, how do, we do this and then do it 20 times for the whole corps de ballet. Uh, I, what I find now, I've been a freelance designer now for just five years, is that shops kind of want the designer to go away. You know, you want them to come with the sketches and inspire you, and then they want to figure it out, and then they want you to come back and fit it, and then they want you to go away while they fix it, and then they want you to come back. And so there's a lot of free time for designers where we had uh, two people come from the costume shop in New York for this ballet for the final dress. And I kept thinking, boy, I hope we have enough for them to do. I felt guilty because it is stretch and they were simple things. We had plenty for them to do. But there was a point where I was just standing around and I, my fingers were itching and I finally just said, I've got to set this up for you. Give me 80 of these and I'll start doing it. And and I watched them go, you know, ooh, designer with scissors or designer with a needle, oh my god. And, and, I, and it's the first time I'd used this shop because the other shop I mentioned had closed. So I hadn't used this shop in 10 years. And uh, it, when it was all over, I said, I hope that was all right with everybody. And they said, no, if it wasn't, we would have told you. So I, they had a you know, warm enough reaction to me that it was okay. And I did an okay job. It was fine. I didn't cut anything up, make any holes. But... I, you know, because also I spend so much part of my life going to other shops and guiding them, it's very hard for me to turn it off. I can imagine. And then, you know, at, how do you handle a situation in which they've perhaps just misinterpreted your design or there, there's a problem that needs to be solved? We want to make this odd-looking structure, and do you give them the ideas about how to solve that or it's a collaboration yeah. it's it's probably 50% designer 50% the makers i have a i have a piece that is a new full length for Kansas City in the fall to uh, tom sawyer american composer american story all american design team it's really exciting and in there is the cemetery scene and all these ghouls and creatures come out and scare tom and huck and the first set that comes out are 10 women that are supposed to be fireflies. 
Well, I drew the cutest firefly you've ever seen, and it has, you know, sparkles in the tutu and the butt, and it was colorful and it was fabulous. Well, they hated it. So the next thing I drew was a black hooded, long sleeve, long legged unitard with twinkle lights in it. I thought this would be really fun. Well, twinkle lights are really hard. And now I'm finding this out. And think about it, you have to remove the twinkle lights to be able to wash the unitard. Then if the wire breaks somehow, the costume department now is responsible, not the lighting guys. They don't want to deal with that. It's too small and fine and they don't want to deal with it. So now they want to teach the costume people how to use the soldering iron. And, and the costume people are going, soldering iron? So they thought, okay, maybe we can't do this. All right, now, let's see. So now we're at a point where I've suggested that they have a two-piece unitard. The second piece has the long sleeves and has the hood. And maybe the lights are just in that part. And that can come off and the under thing can be laundered. And then if we want twinkles on the rest of the body, because you want to see the leg go up and see twinkles, then we'll, we'll do iron-on rhinestones. But then there's a black light section. You know, so all these different things are, are things that you may not realize when you're seeing the final product that you've had all these different ideas. In Chris Wilden's ballet, there was a point where he said, maybe they could all change clothes for the end. Wouldn't that be great for the finale? They'd all be different. I said, it's a 17-minute ballet. <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, but you can figure out something. You're clever. Come on, come on, come on. So when we first came for our first fitting, the costumes you see tonight were in two different pieces so that part of it could come off and they could be a little more risque or a little more skin showing in the finale. Until I watched the video again and decided I would count how much time they had to make this change. And I went one, two, three, that's it. Three seconds. And I called Christopher in London, or I emailed him, and I said, we have a problem, Houston. I don't think they're changing clothes. And he wrote back and said, I totally understand. It's fine. Make a commitment one way or the other. Pick the style you like the most, and, and that's what they'll be. And that's, that's what they are. We've saved a few minutes. Will you take some questions? Sure. sure. Would some of you like to ask some questions? Those of you who've come in late, in case you hadn't figured out, we're talking to designer Holly Hines, costume designer for Chris Wilden's ballet. Here's a question. Yeah. Um, what about lighting? Perfect question for this ballet is what about the lighting? Because the lighting for our ballet is phenomenal. If I wasn't already married, I would marry this woman who is the lighting designer because... <laughs> I want her on every ballet I do from now on. Her name is M.L. Escher, and I'm sure M.L. was involved in the planning of the blue floor, the first conversation. And then I, what I did was I sent her my sketches, and I sent her swatches of all the different fabrics so that in her studio back in New York, she could look at it under lights and start plotting what gels would work. And then our first, and Chris had warned me, you're going to love her, and he was absolutely right. And the first day here... She came up to me and said, well, I was thinking, like, for the teal girl, how would you feel about red behind her? And I went, fabulous, yes. And maybe the lemon could be, and she was using contrasting colors. And so it, if you happen to doze during the first two ballets, you will not doze during the third ballet because between the color of the costumes and the color of the lights and the Michael Torkey music, it will wake you up and you'll be dancing back to the parking garage. Another question. Thought I saw a hand. Yes. Have you ever had the occasion to 
What a politically incorrect question to ask. Have I ever had to turn down a ballet for one reason or another? Sure. And it's really, it's a painful, it's a painful phone call. Um, I am lucky that I work a lot, so I really try to take as much on as I possibly can. Um, probably one of the hardest decisions this year was, I, I can't say who it is, but some of you will figure it out. There is a ex-Balanchine ballerina that has her own company out of Kennedy Center. And there was a project that she wanted me to do, and it was the same week that Tom Sawyer was opening. And I knew I couldn't do it, and I'm the resident designer of her company. And I had to say, I, I'm really sorry, I can't do it. And I must say, she's postponed the ballet. So that, that turned out very nicely for me. I'm sorry that she's postponing it, but um, I'm glad to get to be a part of it. But it's a hard, you want to do it all. You don't want to turn anything down. What's my, what's my biggest challenge professionally? Um, keeping everything calm at home when I'm traveling all over the world has been a challenge. But uh, I, I was lucky enough to do uh, new designs for Balanchine's Don Quixote for the National Ballet of Canada, and it was also performed at Kennedy Center with that woman's company I mentioned before. And um, that, that was tough because it, you know it was an iconic piece um, people had very strong memories of what uh, the costumes looked like. Um, there wasn't a lot of research, but because I had access to City Ballet, I was able to s see some of the old costumes. And so, you know, what you try to do is respect the person's original concept and learn from that and embrace it, but bring your own ideas to the table. And that was over 210 costumes, so that, that was probably one of the biggest challenges I've had. Good, good point. The question was, can I talk about designing for the front row and designing for the last row, and, and who am I looking for? Uh, the, the first Broadway show I ever did was at a small theater in New York called Circle in the Square, and I asked Ted Mann, who was the producing director of the company, I've never done a circle, in the you know, a round theater before. And how do you how do you design for the first row? And then you got those people up there in the thirty third row. What do you do? And he said, the critics are in the ninth row. <laughs> so I guess that answers your question a little bit. Um, but but I try to perfect for both. You know, I I want the costumes to fit well enough that the people down here can see it and, and don't see more than they're supposed to see. But then I also want it to be interesting for the person back there. So when we do tech rehearsals, we bounce around the theater. And we'll, we'll go up to the balconies so you get it from a different perspective. Um, you know, and sometimes you have to increase the feather on the hat or the buttons on the front or uh, take a color down because it's just too strong for these people. But I'm passing out sunglasses tonight for the first three rows, so we'll be okay. You're I, perfect. <laughs> I wish we could go on and on. Um, some of you have gotten so you recognize when the curtain begins to billow, things are happening, and they've called half hour. So we have to wrap it up. Holly, this has been delightful and informative. And Thank you. I think you've set us up to really, really enjoy Christopher Wielden's ballet. Great. 
Thank you all. Be sure you go to the website and listen to this all over again. It'll be one of the ones that'll be worth it. And do enjoy this evening's program. Thank you. Thank you.